First of all, let me say that uh, it is a blessing to be here. I'd like to thank uh, the brethren here at the Tabernacle for generously inviting me to come. And I'd like to thank Dr. Masters as well. It's been a blessing to get to know him, if even at a long distance. Um, and I say that uh, it's a blessing to be here, especially in view of um, just the privilege that we have to consider the importance of God's word. And also I'd like to thank the, the generosity of, uh, of um, Chris and Joan Laws for having us in their home and uh, accommodating us. And uh, it's been a blessing to hear from them and learn a little bit about the history of the tabernacle. Um, Chris has been, uh, it's been interesting talking to him. I did ask him about this ominous looking timer off to my left. It has a, a, a section that's in the red. And I said, what happens when the timer gets into the red? And he says, well, there's a trap door uh, <laughs> behind the pulpit. So I would ask for your prayers that uh, my, my life may be in danger in about 39 minutes. But, uh, but uh, no, we've had a great time getting to know each other and fellowshipping. And um, I think of Proverbs 16, 9, um, which reminds us that the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, originally, we had planned to be here uh, in 2020, and I don't think I need to explain to you what that means. Uh, the world changed for everybody in 2020. Last year was still prohibitive in terms of our coming out because of um, travel restrictions. Um, but in the providence of God, we're able to be with you now and, and today, and so I'm thankful for that. And let me begin by uh, saying something that I think is crucial as a preliminary statement, and that is this. We are not together here to today to talk about fallible prophecy, and I am not myself uh, what I would call a controversialist. Uh, what do I mean by a controversialist? Uh, by, by that I mean that I don't get up in the morning and make my cup of coffee, have my prayer time, and then go out and look for a fight. Um, I don't spend my days looking for contests just to have a contest. In fact, I oftentimes think of Jude, who was preparing to write about the wonderful subject of our common salvation, as he says in his epistle, but then he felt the need to change what he was doing. Why? Because he heard about, learned about, those men who had crept in unnoticed into the church and were propagating a heteropraxy and a heterodoxy in the midst of the people of God. And so he therefore felt the necessity to write to them, to urge them to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's in that sense that I say that I'm not a controversialist. I hope that our ultimate focus this morning will be on the beauty of God in his word, even as we talk about the subject of fallible prophecy. In fact, I think about texts like Isaiah 66, where the Lord says, on this one will I look on him who is poor and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word, who trembles 
at my word. Why should we tremble at God's word? Well, because God's word is a communication of God's own nature and glory. And so when we open the pages of Holy Writ, we are beholding the glory of God as revealed in his word. And so when Peter says, and this is a remarkable text and we'll be looking at it a little bit more later, when he says that prophecy never came by the will of man, prophecy never came by the will of man, but men spoke, men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's why we should tremble. Because when we read in scripture, we are seeing and beholding, as I said, the glory of God as he reveals himself sufficiently in his word. And so we know by means of the word that uh, his words are indeed pure. The words of the Lord are pure as silver refined in a furnace on the earth seven times. In this temporal world in which we live, we're very glad to know that while the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And we have been in our little church back in Germantown, we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. And we've been looking at the beauty of the exalted nature of Christ. And we, we looked at the reality of what God has done in revealing his word to us. Where the scripture says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 that the word of, the, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing beyond the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all is open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Why should we tremble at God's word? Because, because of all the instruments of warfare and all the weapons that have ever been created throughout human history, nothing is so powerful so as to lay open the human heart and expose it for what it is, exposing us for our need for Christ. In saying all these things as a preliminary statement, I think that when we use the words fallible prophecy, it's likely that you'll think to yourself, that sounds like an oxymoron. If you're thinking that, you're spot on, because fallible prophecy is indeed an oxymoron. These are contradictory terms. They don't really go together if we're talking about legitimate prophecy. I believe that decades of the charismatic, communion, charismatic movement, we have had various counterfeit versions of New Testament gifts being proffered to the public. Fallible prophecy, of course, is one of them. People will claim to be a prophet, they'll make a prophecy, they're found to be an error, and nothing is said about their error. In terms of the gift of healing, instead of the New Testament gift where an, an individual who was clearly and obvious, obviously infirmed would be miraculously healed, and it was clear and evident and verified Instead of that, we now have a, a, an alternative, a counterfeit version of this that is being used and manipulated by the health, wealth, and prosperity movement in order to fill its coffers. And in terms of the gift of tongues, instead of the New Testament gift whereby God would give a 
formerly unknown language, human language, to an individual who did not know that language so that they could communicate the gospel, we now have unintelligible speech that is not a known language, and they claim that this is tongues. By the way, when I was an unbeliever, I was brought to a charismatic tarrying meeting, and it was a strange experience because everybody was standing around like uh, soldiers in formation, and everyone was standing there quietly. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, everybody started speaking this indiscernible thing. They weren't speaking any kind of a language. They were just babbling. Even as an unbeliever, I knew that. And a gentleman came up to me, and he said, he said, are you okay? Because I, I was standing there just scared. I didn't know what to make of the whole thing. And I said, well, I'm fine, but I just don't know what's going on. And so he stepped away and he said, well, just, you know, it's okay. Just let, let the spirit lead you. And then he walked away and let me by, be by myself for a few minutes. And this went on for a few more minutes. And then I still was just standing there. I didn't know what to say. He came back to me and he said this to me. He said, well, you know what? What you can do is you can just listen to what everybody else is doing and just reproduce what they're doing. Make the same sounds that they're making. As an unbeliever, I thought to myself, well, if this is Christianity, I'll have nothing to do with it. This is just artificial. This is just pretending. When the Lord converted me, he revealed to me through the scriptures, through the gospel, that all of that had nothing to do with Christianity. I believe that this problem that we have of the importation of fallible prophecy into the contemporary church and into otherwise conservative churches and seminaries, as Dr. Masters was talking about, I believe that this is principally due to the the labors of Dr. Wayne Grudem. Because through his voluminous labors, he has essentially given an appearance of credibility to the idea of the doctrine, the teaching of fallible prophecy. And this is really what I'm addressing. I'm concerned mostly about the fact that this this teaching has moved into the the church, into conservative churches, and it has done done so through the, the Trojan horse of New Calvinism and through popular teachers and pastors like John Calvin, or excuse me, John Piper, and Wayne Grudem. Thankfully, John Calvin has nothing to do with this. <laughs> Grudem himself has had a great deal of academic acclaim uh, throughout the years. He's written as many as 21 books. His doctoral thesis uh, was based primarily on the subject of fallible prophecy. Uh, his first book in 1988 was entirely about the subject of prophecy, uh, fallible prophecy. And he has written a systematic theology. There's a first and second edition of this work. In both of them, really the subject of fallible prophecy remains the same. I've I've purchased the uh, second edition. I've looked at the two. I've compared the two. I don't see any differences between the two. Fifty pages, though, he dedicates to the subject of fallible prophecy. This is something that is very much central to Grudem and his emphasis in teaching. And his most recent systematic theology advertises that it has sold as many as 750,000 copies and has been translated into, I believe, as many as 16 different languages. 
please know this is a ubiquitous work. It is a ubiquitous work. It is influencing a great number of people. And I would just select for you one of the endorsements of the many endorsements that are in his systematic theology. Let me just read to you the endorsement offered by Greg Allison, who is a professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says this, and I quote, Our current generation is seeing a resurgence in Reformed theology and practice fueled by the likes of John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, the Gospel Coalition, and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. At the heart, at the heart of this renaissance is a textbook read by over 750,000 students, pastors, Christian leaders, and lay people in churches. He's referring to Grudem's systematic theology. Well, I agree with Allison that yes, this is a ubiquitous work, but my argument is that this is a problem. The fact that this, this book has spread so far and wide, the fact that it is influencing so many, is in fact a problem. Throughout my years uh, in the ministry, I've come across a number of individuals who have used Grudem's systematic theology. In fact, just recently, just a few months ago, I talked to a pastor in California, and uh, he attended a conservative seminary, and because the seminary itself used Grudem's systematic theology, he felt totally comfortable to get it himself, and he had his leaders read it. They consumed it, they studied it together, and then he discovered what Grudem had to say about the, the sign gifts and about the subject of fallible prophecy, and then he wanted to put the brakes on the whole thing, because he now realized this is a problem. Well, the damage had already been done. A number of the men who were reading this fell under the influence of what Grudem was teaching, and through those leaders, other people in the church fell under the influence of this teaching. Sadly, the church ended up going through a very difficult and damaging church split. I do not believe that this is an issue that we can set aside as an irrelevance. This is not um, an issue that is just looking where we're just looking for a contest or a fight. How we define what prophecy is, is important. It is essential to our understanding concerning God, his word, and the nature of God himself, who reveals himself through his word. So in this first session, and I will promise for you that in this session and in the second session, I'm only giving you a summary of what is in the book, The Fallible Prophets of New Calvinism. Um, with the time that's allotted to me, that's, I can only do that and just give summaries. But hopefully, I'll be able to give you enough of a summary so that you can have a sense of why this is a problematic teaching and why it is so clearly faulty. So the first thing I'd like to do in this session is to begin with summarizing the teaching of fallible prophecy. We need to think about what this teaching actually says and advocates before we even say anything else. Then we're going to examine the broken foundation of this, of this doctrine. We'll look in particular at the lexical analysis that Grudem supplies in his defense of the doctrine of fallible prophecy. And then, and I'm sorry to say this, we're not going to have enough time to give this the time and attention that is due to it, but in the end, we'll consider 
the fact that the Bible really gives prophecy to the church as a kind of a test of love. Now, before I even explain that, I'll just wait till we get to that. But this is really an important concept, and I'll actually say a little bit more about this at the Pastor's Fraternal on Monday. But uh, time willing, we'll say a little bit anyway uh, about that in the third point. But let's go to the first point here. And the first matter of consideration, let's first of all summarize what we're talking about when we talk about fallible prophecy. As I said, this is an accommodationistic doctrine. For decades, televangelists have appeared on TV, they've issued their predictions, their prophecies. Their prophecies would then be proven to be untrue, and then what would happen after that? Well, nothing. The prophecy would be ignored. The, the entire thing would be forgotten as if it never happened. And then you just move on. This has really been the pattern that we've seen within the charismatic community. And I believe that Grudem's teaching on fallible prophecy is really kind of a, a rescue effort. It's an effort to rescue this practice and give it some sort of doctrinal justification. It's, it's as if there was the heteropraxy that was in existence, and then there was the creation of a heterodoxy doctrine of prophecy to buttress it. And so this rescue effort that Grudem has put forth is one that really proffers a third category of prophecy. If you go to the Bible, what do you find? You find that there are prophetes and pseudo-prophetes. You have prophets and you have false prophets. Genuine prophets of God and those who are false prophets. That's it. Fallible prophecy advances the notion of a third category. A third category of prophecy, and in this case, in this third category, you have a genuine prophet who speaks in error, but still remains as a genuine prophet. Now, that's alien to Scripture. That is utterly alien to Scripture. And by the way, I should say before saying anything else, the label fallible prophecy, that's not my label. I'm borrowing that from Gruden uh, himself. He uh, used that expression when describing the ministry of Agabus, where he calls Agabus a fallible prophet. And so I'm using his label. I want you to know that. But when you go to Grudem and ask and inquire what his definition of fallible prophecy is, here's a sample um, that he gives where he says this, quote, in practical terms, fallible prophecy means that even if a prophecy contains words of ethical instructions, for example, you shouldn't go to London, this is actually his example, uh, you should leave your job and devote all your time to preaching, or you should marry Philip. These instructions should not be considered divine obligations, i.e. to, to dis disobey them would not be, the th be thought of as the same as disobeying God, but they should be viewed as the prophet's own fairly accurate, but not infallible, report of something he thinks, though not without absolute certainty, or not with absolute certainty, has been revealed to him by God. Now that's a mouthful, and that's a lot of parenthetical qualifications, but you have someone who is fairly accurate, not infallible, and without absolute certainty. That sounds like my 
truck that's 20 years old. I mean, when I turn the key, I, I don't really know if it's going to be turning over and operating. It's fairly accurate, fairly consistent. But uh, this is really not what we're talking about when we talk about a genuine prophet of God. And then he makes an appeal to the cessationist community. He says this, I am asking those in the cessationist camp to give serious thought to the possibility that prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to scripture in authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. With all this error and all this fallibility, you'd have to wonder why anybody would want this. By the way, we can be thankful that Luke, when he introduces Agabus, he doesn't introduce him as a fairly accurate, not infallible, without absolute certainty prophet. Because again, this concept is alien to scripture. Now this is the summary here of fallible prophecy. You have the general gist of what we're talking about here. I want us to move on now to the second point and consider the broken foundation of this doctrine, particularly looking at the lexical basis for Grudem's argument, the lexical argument that he puts forth for fallible prophecy. Before I do that, though, let's ground our thinking a little bit further in 2 Peter chapter 1. In fact, if you have that text uh, there, I'd like for you to look at that, please. The Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says, prophecy is not for your own private interpretation. It's not for your idios. It's not your own to play with like a toy. You don't get to take scripture and say, I think this verse means this. Why? Because prophecy is God's possession that he gives to us. That's why. By the way, that's why Joseph, when speaking of God's prophetic revelation, he says that interpretations belong to God. Well, why did they belong to God? Because his revelation is his. It's not ours, it's his. And why is it that we can't take scripture and interpret it as we wish according to our own private interpretation? He stipulates the matter very clearly in verse 21. He says, for no prophecy... No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, it's not evident in the text in the way the translators translate it, but you have what's called a negative particle placed in the emphatic position in verse 21. That coupled with the modifier, the word pate, ever, 
gives you a sentence construction that you might read something like this. Not ever, not ever did a prophecy come by an act of human will. And so if you ask the question, what did it ever happen? The prophecy, genuine prophecy, came as a result of human thinking? The answer is never. Why? Because prophecy is this. It is the result of men being moved, pheromonoi, moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. That word is used in Acts 27, 17, pharaoh, the root word, to speak of a ship that is being moved along by the wind. This is exactly what you have when we're talking about genuine prophecy. Men of God being moved by the power of God to communicate God's words. This is a miracle is what it is. What's so key about this text is the universal negation that he has when he says that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will or not ever did this happen, in other words. Why is a universal negation so important? Well, I'll tell you, as we've been studying through Hebrews uh, chapter 4, we came to verse 15, which says that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, and then he says, yet without sin. How important is that negation? How important is that universal negation? Well, I'll tell you what, if you take those words out of the Bible, the entire Bible collapses. Because all the promises concerning Christ and everything that is stipulated in the New Testament suddenly is is torn asunder because you now have a, a Messiah who has sinned, if that's the case. Thanks be to God, that's not the case. Without sin, he says, Christ was without sin. That's why we refer to him as the unblemished lamb of God. And that's why his sacrifice is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Peter's negation, his universal negation is important. He's letting us know that when we're talking about prophecy, it never came by an act of human will. And whether we're talking about inscripturated prophecy or we're talking about spoken prophecy, it's all the same. If it's from God, it's the product of men being moved by the Spirit. One last thing about that text. When he says this, know this first of all, he uses the word proton. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he used that word proton and he called the commandment of love for God and love for man the foremost, the first. It stands above them all. This is really the lesson that Peter is giving to us. He's already explained to us the fact that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that is Christ, and now he's explaining the veracity and dependability of what God has revealed. He's helping us to understand that we have a real and sure foundation in God's prophetic revelation. But when we come to the teaching of fallible prophecy, we find a very different foundation. Let me quote to you the central point, the central section in which Grudem presents his version of things concerning the the 
lexical definition of prophecy. And I, 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 again, I'm going to apologize to you. I'm going to read a lengthy section here, but you need to hear what he is presenting. You need to hear the details of it. He says this, many writings outside the Bible use the word prophet, prophetes, without signifying any divine authority in the words of one called a prophet. You could almost stop right there because he's telling us we're going outside the Bible. He's at least admitting that. But we go on. In fact, by the time of the New Testament, the term prophet in everyday use often simply meant one who has supernatural knowledge or one who predicts the future or even just spokesmen without any connotations of divine authority. Several examples near the time of the New Testament are given in Helmut Kramer's article in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And so he lists them off, and I'm going to summarize them. One is a philosopher. A philosopher is called a prophet of immortal nature, a teacher uh, who wants to be a prophet of truth and candor. Uh, Those who advocate Epicurean philosophy are called prophets of Epicurus. Written history is called the prophetess of truth. A specialist in botany is called a prophet. And my favorite is a quack in medicine is called a prophet. How many times have you ever used the word quack in this respect? This is referring to an individual who feigns medical knowledge. In fact, the word uh, quack salver speaks of an individual who tried to sell his medical uh, uh, ointments, uh, his salves, in order to uh, make money. He was really a charlatan, but that's what a quack salver was, an individual who feigned medical knowledge. Grudem is throwing this into the mix, and he's telling us that this is a part, part and parcel of what we ought to be thinking about when the New Testament writers were using this word prophetes. He then says this, quoting Grudem, Kramer concludes that the Greek word for prophet simply expresses the formal function of declaring, proclaiming, making known, yet because every prophet declares something which is not his own, the Greek word for herald, kerex, is the closest synonym. As I said before, as soon as you get to the words that Grudem supplies, where he says, outside the Bible, you could probably close the book and be done at that point. But mark this, by going outside the Bible, it wouldn't be difficult at all to harvest aberrant meanings for any well-defined word. And I would suggest to you, this is becoming a growing habit from many uh, individuals who write books and are pastors and so forth. Um, There are several examples that come to my mind. Uh, Jody Dillo wrote the book, The Reign of the Servant Kings, a number of years ago. He uh, took the word uh, metokos and, and... really modify the meaning of the word using secular Greek connotations. And as a result of that modification of that term, he modified the idea of inheriting or not inheriting the kingdom of heaven as referring to Christians who are disobedient. They don't inherit the kingdom, but they still go to heaven. It's just a, um, another place in heaven. They, they, they don't really get the, the better part of heaven in a sense. A really very twisted kind of teaching and thinking. N.T. Wright retools the word righteousness in order to modify the idea, really, of justification by faith. And what does he do? He goes to intertestamental writings 
of Shemite Pharisees and tells us that Paul was heavily influenced by those writings. You know, you can retool any doctrine by taking a single word and modifying it, changing it, transforming it, so that everything around it then is reshaped and refashioned. Now, I've just read that section to you, and I need to say a few things about the section from which Grudem heavily depends upon for his argument for fallible prophecy. What is especially interesting about his citation of Kramer is this. In Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, words are assessed and analyzed, and and, and some words command uh, just a few paragraphs because maybe the word isn't used very much in the New Testament. Other words command a great deal of time and attention because they're so important and are so frequently used. In this case, this word, prophetes, has 80 pages uh, dedicated to it in Kittle's Theological Dictionary. 80 pages, that is a long section for one word. And what's interesting about what Grudem does with that section is, is that he avoids 65 of those pages that tell us what the Old Testament and New Testament says about the word prophetes. And then he goes to a remote section that deals with the secular use of the word, not just in the first century, but really over a span of several centuries in uh, the great Greco-Roman world in the secular context. This is troubling. First of all, going to secular connotations is problematic. I, I was raised in California and we had a kind of a, a dialect, uh, kind of a slang language that kids would use, and, and we called it uh, valley speech. Um, kids got into the habit of using the word righteous to say that something was cool. By the way, is that a term we use here in, in England? No? Cool? Things cool? Okay. Well, kids would say that. If they thought something was cool, they would say, well, that's totally righteous. Totally righteous. What an abuse of a very important term. The word righteous is crucial in the Bible, obviously, because that term helps us to think of an inviolable standard. God is righteous. He is, an, he is the inviolable standard. He is, he is immovable and unchanging, and that's why when we consider the righteousness of God, we understand that he is just and true, and he is the perfect standard of everything. So to use that term to speak of something that is subjectively cooled by cultural standards, preferences, and opinions is really quite the transformation of a single word. If I were to preach a message or write a book arguing that this is how we should do etymology and word studies and how we should do exegesis, I should be removed from the ministry right away. Because running to secular sources is a problem. And frankly, you can get words to mean whatever you want to by that procedure. But this is only part of the problem with Grudem's lexical analysis. The portion that I just quoted to you is actually a segmented quote from Kramer. 
And I'm not going to have the time uh, here to go through this. I must admit, though, that I did um, make one mistake in the book I discovered in the last several weeks. I uh, quoted Grudem and supplied in his quote what's called an ellipsis. Um, If you know what that is, it's just three spaced periods that indicate that if you're quoting somebody and you leave something out of the quote, take a word out or truncate the sentence, you supply what's called an ellipsis. And that tells the reader that, well, there's something missing. There's something else I should go think about and consider. I'm, I'm not giving the full quote. When I quoted Grudem, I added the ellipsis, which he should have supplied, but he didn't supply it. He didn't tell the reader there's more with an ellipsis. No, he ends his citation of Kramer with a period where he should have put a comma and an ellipsis to help us to understand that Kramer goes on to say, he says this, for the Carex too declares that he receives from another, this parallelism applies also to the occasional function of being a spokesman to the gods, speaking of a prophet. The prophet occupies a mediatorial role. He is the mouthpiece of the god, and he is also man's spokesman to the god. So now we're talking about a prophet as a mediator between God and man, and man to God. And prior to this quote, which again, Grudem doesn't give proper editorial reference here in his citation, Kramer also says this, he says, historical seers and prophets not connected with an oracle are never called prophetai or christolomogoi or the like. On the other hand, prophesying demons and gods may be called the prophets of a higher god as well as men, though it is worth noting that this does not apply to the supreme god Zeus. Now, by the time you read all of that, you think to yourself, why am I even reading this? And what relevancy does this even have to the subject of prophecy, biblical prophecy? Well, the answer clearly is none. Anyone who would read this section would quickly and easily understand that this has no relevance to the biblical definition and idea of prophecy. Prophesying demons and the mediatorial function of the prophet to God, guess what? The Bible celebrates, heralds, and upholds this singular truth of the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If we were to take Grudem at his word and taking Kramer at the full force of his presentation, then we would actually then have to say, well, we have prophets in the modern day who are mediators such that we go to God through them. But that is not our reality. We have access to the Father through his Son. Unfortunately and sadly, Roman Catholicism has established its religious replicas from the first century Roman world. They basically borrowed from the secular culture. This ancient concept of the intercessory pontifices still abides in Rome, but such pagan constructs have no place within genuine Christianity. The point is simply this. Those who substitute biblical definitions with pagan and secular concepts expose themselves and their followers to untold dangers and immeasurable confusion. 
fact, I, had, I need to add one more thing, and this is something that I discovered only lately. In Kramer's article, not only is he talking about secular uses, and, and by the way, he's not just talking about secular uses, he's talking about the broader secular uses. In other words, these are more the outlier examples of the day. But in that section, Kramer actually supplies five different sections of different examples and categories in which the word prophet would be used. And Grudem, without explanation, picks the fourth section of the five and doesn't explain why. And in that fourth section from which Grudem quotes, Kramer says, this group is used in philosophy and science from Plato. Plato. Why would I be consulting Plato on a definition of prophecy? You know, sadly, the early church struggled with proto-Gnosticism and the Platonic ideology that was rampant in the culture. And the proto-Gnosticism that was in the early church then gave way to full-blown Gnosticism due to the Platonic dualism that spread throughout the early church, ravaged the church. Why in the world would we import any kind of Platonic philosophy into our thinking at all? There is no good reason for it. But this is what you get when you go outside the Bible, which is exactly what he said. And at that point, we could have been done even with all of his quotations. Let me just say a few concluding words. And again, as I said, I'm, I'm summarizing and being very brief here. But I want to remind us of the fact that this is not about being a controversialist. Um, when I wrote the book, by the way, I should say, in my own local ministry, we were not struggling with this issue of fallible prophecy. I didn't have people trying to bring about this influence in the church. Um, all that I knew was is that there were other pastors who were using this systematic theology, and after I went through it myself, I thought, well, why are they using this? And so I decided to write the book because my real concern is, is for God's sheep. My own church, but also other brethren. It's a dangerous thing for people to go outside the Bible to define the Bible, period. But really, when we think about it, this is what love, love for Christ, would have us to do. What was remarkable to me was is that I was finding pastors who were saying, well, you know, I, I know he's kind of aberrant in his thinking in this. He's a little eccentric and different in, in his teaching and so forth, but it's really not a big deal. And I I can't help but to think and remember that in Deuteronomy 18.20, the individual who claimed to be a prophet presumed to be a prophet and spoke, but not from God because God didn't send that prophet. That prophet was to die. And the word in the Hebrew that is used for that presumptuous prophet is the word zed, which speaks of the arrogance and self-presumption of an individual who is imagining that they're speaking for God, but they're not. 
Capital punishment is pretty serious. And while this isn't the practice in the New Covenant, it is a lesson to us in the modern day whereby we understand that God takes this seriously, and so should we. The Lord in Deuteronomy 13 says this, he says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, speaking of the false prophet. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's really the foremost commandment, right, that Jesus identified. In Deuteronomy 13, we have this remarkable lesson that God places the test within his own church, with, amongst his own people, that we should see and test and evaluate the claimant of the prophetic gift. And that it is frankly unloving to ignore such a problem when you have someone who is falsely claiming this gift. I would suggest to you we're not free to ignore it. In fact, the similar thought of love, the primacy of love, is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church when, remember, he was writing to them and was really refuting their abuse of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But how remarkable it is that in the middle of those rebukes and corrections regarding their abuse of spiritual gifts, you have the 13th chapter on love. And after telling them and refuting them with the the notion of the fact that they were actually accepting the idea that someone was standing up and saying, Jesus is accursed, Paul had to write them and say, no one by the Spirit does that. Nobody by the Spirit is going to say, Jesus is accursed. And how fitting it is that he then teaches us about love in the 13th chapter. Reminding us of the fact that we need to test these things, evaluate these things. We need to, in love, tell people that, no, this is not what prophecy is. Prophecy is beautiful. It is a gift from God. And we're not free to do with it as we wish, redefine it as we prefer. Doing so is a fearful prospect. And it ought to make us tremble at the thought of even tampering with God's word at all. So brethren, again, I say to you, um, this is a summary. This is clearly just a primer. We'll say more about this subject in the second session about Agabus. Agabus is the central prophet used by the teachers of fallible prophecy as their model and example for what a fallible prophet is what he does, and how we should respond to such fallible prophecy.